I'm Jeff Sikinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Well, I wanna welcome everybody this evening to our uh, webinar. We really appreciate you joining us tonight. I'm Jeff Sikinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Ashbrook is an independent educational center located at Ashland University. Uh, we run programs for students, teachers, and citizens in American history and American politics and American founding principles uh, here at the university, but also around the country. And we really believe it's our mission to help educate Americans on their shared history and on their fundamental principles and and on what those principles mean for today. Uh, uh, these programs we've been running since 1983 when we were first inaugurated. And we really believe as an educational center that education is not just about information, certainly not about indoctrination, but about discovering the truth. We, we try to follow Aristotle's old dictum that all men by nature desire to know, and then we add, but they don't wanna to be told. They wanna to discover it for themselves. And we found that really one of the best ways to discover the truth about things is through conversation. So we wanna have a conversation tonight with you and with our guest uh, about a topic that's on a lot of people's minds and that's very important for the direction of our country. And that is the 2022 midterm elections. Please join that conversation tonight with us by putting your questions into uh, our distinguished panelists through the Q&A function. I will try, as we always do, to get to as many of those questions as we can. Sometimes we can't always get to every one of them, but we will certainly try as we go through the conversation. And it is our, our privilege tonight to be joined in the conversation by Henry Olson. He is really one of America's foremost analysts of elections uh, in particular, and more broadly in American politics and American political culture. He received his bachelor's degree from Claremont McKenna College and his JD from the University of Chicago Law School. Uh, he holds a number of positions and has held a number of important positions. He's an adjunct lecturer in politics at Hillsdale College. And before we came on, he and I were talking about uh, a course that he's teaching right now in American politics. He's also, of course, a well-known columnist for the Washington Post and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's a, a Henry is a terrific and prolific author, has articles appeared in lots of publications that you all I'm sure will have heard of, National Review, New York Times, and Wall Street Journal, uh, just to name a few. And uh, Henry was mentioning to me that the Washington Post will publish um, soon on, on the next coming Monday, if that's right, 
uh, his Monday prediction, before election, the Monday before elections. Yeah. His predictions, which have have been uncannily accurate. So let me encourage everybody to take a look at those predictions. So, you know, ahead of time, what's going to happen, because if that's what Henry predicts, that's very likely what, in fact, is going to happen. Um, he's not just a, a public intellectual writing articles, but also an author publishing books. Two of his books, uh, which are both terrific, just want to commend them to you who are interested in American politics. One is called The Working Class uh, Republicans, Ronald Reagan and the Return of Blue Collar Conservatism. And then another book, which is I love, uh, called Four Faces of the Republican Party, uh, The Fight for the 2016 Presidential Nomination. So we have a distinguished guest tonight to talk about these really important midterm elections coming up. Henry Olson, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, can I just start off by taking a step back from the immediate and talk a little bit about historical context. Historically, what are the importance of what we call midterm elections? Historically, midterm elections are when the electorate gets to pass judgment on whether the choice they made two years earlier was the right one. Typically, there is some sense of buyer's remorse that presidents who win in the presidential year see their party lose uh, seats in the House during the first midterm election. Whether they lose in the Senate is in one sense accidental because Senate seats have six-year terms. It could very well be, as was the case in 2018, that it was a bad year for Republicans, but they drew a good hand that there happened to be a lot of Republican-leaning seats held by Democrats up in 2018. So they got wiped out in the House, but they picked up seats in the Senate. It is analogous in a sports sense to tennis. In the, I always tell people that midterms are when you're trying to break serve. So what it can do is a strong victory in a midterm can either by large numbers of gains of seats, as was the case in 1966, or changes in control, as was the case in 2010 and in 2018 and in 2006, and the ability of the presidential party to pass its agenda. And if you, quote, break serve, unquote, that means that the president's party now needs to adapt to a new playing field. And the battle goes on to see whether or not the party that won the midterms can win the presidential election and thereby earn the trust to set new countries, the country's new agenda once they have complete control. So in this particular uh, midterm, as we're approaching it, the, as you say, the Democrats have been really trying to make it a choice between two parties. Right. The Republicans have been trying to make it a referendum on President Biden. Is that what you would expect in a midterm, or are you seeing something different in the strategies of the parties? No, typically referenda are understood to be, uh, midterms are understood to be referenda on the party of the president in power. Uh, when the president is unpopular, as is the case with President Biden now, they try and turn it into a choice say, oh, yeah, you may not like, they never say it directly, but indirectly, you may not like me, but those people are even worse. Um, whereas the party out of power always tries to keep the focus on the party in power and say, we don't like that, you don't like that. Uh, it's pretty rare to see a midterm actually shifted from a referendum into a choice. Typically, that is something that electorates are loath to do. 
And uh, that is increasingly what we're seeing is that after a brief surge in strength for Democrats at the end of the summer, we're seeing the traditional dynamics of the midterm reassert itself. And Republicans have been slowly gaining both in individual polls and in national polls over the last few weeks. So that that would suggest that the generic ballot polls um, and and maybe you can explain to our listeners what those means, because we hear that a lot in the news. The generic polls favor the Republicans over the Democrats. What what does that mean? Right. So you can't ask in a national poll a person about their specific representative. I mean, theoretically, maybe you could. But the thing is, with cell phones these days or text messages, just somebody's prefix may not represent where they actually live. So the pollster doesn't know what district the person is actually in. So instead of trying to guess, they ask a generic, which is to say question that applies to everybody, uh, about which party's candidates they would tend to favor. A variant of that is saying which party's candidates would they like to see win. Pollsters treat those as interchangeable. And you see Republicans versus Democrats, and people will give their answers. That typically has a strong relationship to elections, stronger in the House, because all 435 seats are up, a little less so in the Senate, if you, because you have to uh, interpolate to the specific state but once you do that, it's a pretty strong predictor of the Senate race as well. Uh, and so consequently, that is the attention. Uh, that and the presidential job approval are the two national polls that most analysts look most seriously at when they're trying to gauge where the election is going to turn out. So if you look at those generic polls of preference, party preference, what are you seeing? And is what you're seeing surprising at all or is what you would expect for this time? So what we're seeing is a couple of things. First of all, in the last three weeks, we've been seeing a slow trend towards Republicans in the generic poll. That shouldn't be surprising given that Joe Biden remains below 44% job approval, which is a uh, near historic low for president this new in his term. it's been a little surprising. You haven't seen stronger showings for Republicans given that historic low. And I think some of that is because of problems with today's polls, that uh, the way polls are conducted these days, pollsters have to construct estimates of their model of the electorate rather than rely on a purely random sample. And if the models are off, then their data are off. And historically, High education voters tend to vote more than low education voters. And in the current environment, that favors Democrats. If a pollster is waiting based on prior midterm experience, then they will overstate Democratic strength to what, unless they're right, of course, to what one is likely to find. Um, And that's one reason, I think, why you find a wide variance in pollsters right now. Some still have the Democrats ahead in the generic ballot, despite Joe Biden's historic low ratings. Others have Republicans up by as much as five, six, or seven, which is more in line with what you would expect based on historic trends and Joe Biden's record on popularity. Would you say, um, well, I mean, one of the things we hear, of course, is that uh, whatever the generic ballots will say, the generic polls will say, candidate quality still matters. And some people are arguing that candidate quality matters in the Senate races even more than the House races which for some reason people seem to be saying our house is more nationalized in the polls, even though the districts are smaller. 
What's your sense of the importance of candidate quality uh, in this election? I think it is overstated. And the reason why is this, uh, that since Trump's election, I have looked at every Senate race that was seriously contested and compared the outcome of the race to the presidential job approval rating uh, at, in the exit polls at that time. And what I find is that even in Senate races, the candidates run uh, closely aligned with the presidential job approval rating in that state. Only two candidates have run more than five points ahead of the presidential job approval rating or in one, you know, imputed disapproval rating with respect to a Democrat. And those are Sue, Ma Sue Collins of Maine and Joe Manchin of West Virginia. And what do they both have in common? They have decades of prior elected experience and a record of not being partisan. So it makes sense that those candidates who have a long proven track record of being middle of the road could persuade people from the other party who might in West Virginia like Donald Trump to say, but Joe Manchin's a good guy too. Most of these candidates uh, that we're looking at don't have that experience. The Democratic candidates who are supposed to be benefiting from poor Republican candidate quality uh, have not had years of experience uh, in their states. Their states are larger too, so they get to know personally fewer people. And also to be more party. John Fetterman is supposed to have a blue collar appeal, but in fact, he takes a very progressive line on virtually all the issues. Uh, same is true of Raphael Warnock, who was uh, um, uh, flagrantly progressive before he became a senator. It's very hard to say, well, this person has 30 years of a moderate record. So I expect that in each of these cases, Democrats will run ahead of Joe Biden's job approval in their state. But uh, there's a pretty big gap between the mansion Collins and the next highest person. The next highest person is um, Heidi Heitkamp in 2018 in North Dakota, who ran five points ahead. Um, that suggests that we should be looking more at where the Democrats are in relation to Biden job approval and what where they're actually polling than the margin. And the fact that both Warnock and Fetterman are 50% races suggest they might be just playing that they can't approach. What about expenditures, campaign expenditures? I'm thinking of even outside groups. Uh, are you seeing, uh, I'm thinking, for example, here in our state of Ohio with Vance against Ryan for the Senate race. Uh, I think some observers in Ohio were surprised by how tight it is, given what seems to be a trend toward Trump and the Republicans in the state. And but yet the Dem yet I've heard Democrats complain that not enough is being done to help Tim Ryan in what should be a close race. Is, is Ohio an anomaly? Is the money following the polls? Or is it not in this in this midterm? Well, yeah, I think it's very notable that national Democrats are not a dog behind Tim Ryan's campaign. And they've been fooled before. The thing is that Ohio is one of those states that has a consistent poll bias against the Republicans. That if you go back to 2018, uh, Mike DeWine was supposed to either be slightly behind or in a toss-up race. He won pretty comfortably. Um, Sherrod Brown was supposed to be waltzing away with a double-digit win. He won by seven points. Go to 2020. Trump was supposed to be narrowly ahead. He won by eight points. Uh, we consistently see state-level polls are wrong in states that have high numbers of whites and increasingly Hispanics without college degrees. And I think national Democrats are saying, yeah, if, if 
uh, J.D. Vance is ahead by two points in the polls. That probably means he's really ahead by 10 on election day. And that means that it's not going to be close. It's He's going to run a closer race than Mike DeWine, who's going to walk away with it. But in the end, I think national Democrats are saying they're not going to throw $10 million to chase a will of the West because I suspect their polls are a little bit better than the public polls and that they show something that's a little, little different, which is, say, a larger high single-digit advance lead. So if you're looking across the, the, the spectrum of Senate races and House races, and of course we should also throw in governor's races, I'm sure, and state legislative races, um, what are the trends? You mentioned one trend already, which is the Democrats seem to have peaked in August, and er, late August, early September, perhaps, and now Republicans are swinging back to Republicans. Do you expect that swing to continue into Election Day? And are there other trends now that you're seeing develop in these last days? Yeah, I uh, typically what we've been seeing in polls, even the national polls that favor Democrats, is that people who say they're undecided are independents who don't lean towards either party who dislike Joe Biden. You know, typically what that means is that these people will end up breaking against the party in power. If you're not with the party in power by this point, you're against the party in power, whether you want to admit it or not. Uh, so I expect that trends will absent a black swan event, <clears throat> a national or international event that dominates the news and changes people's uh, opinions. Um, I would expect some slight uh, movement towards Republicans, you know, some in the polling average. I would expect it to be a couple of more points in Republicans' favor as independents who tend, these independents are not high political news consumers. These are people who vote as much out of a sense of citizenship, out of a love of politics. They make up their minds late regardless. They don't follow every in and out. Uh, but they have a pretty clear sense of where they're going. And I would be, it would be go against what we know about elections. In other words, it would be a strongly atypical midterm election if they were to decide absent an intervening uh, cri crisis that changed their mind about Biden himself. Um, absent something like that, um, they will probably break against Biden. And that means there's a couple more points in the bank for Republicans. Looking at a question here, uh, from our audience talking about the outside investments. What are you seeing in the trends of, the, the viewer wants to know, what are you seeing in the trends of media purchases? Yeah. Are we seeing typical, is it TV, is it print, is it digital, and is it varying, or are we you seeing the same trends that started back in 2018, 2020, continuing now? Well, you know, the thing is that TV is still king. It's king because uh, you don't, uh, people still consume it, even if they don't consume broadcast. So you have to spread your dollar more widely. You know, you'll, you'll, uh, if we were talking about 20 years ago, a lot of TV would be on broadcast or on high independent stations around major programs. Today, it's all over the place because people's viewing is so diffuse, but it's still largely a TV game. Um, there's a lot of money spent on digital, but when you look at the proportions, it's still spent much more on television than on digital or on radio. You know, but a lot of these campaigns are flush with cash. It's particularly true with Democratic campaigns because Trump, uh, in, in being enraged about Trump, has meant that people are sending money to Democrats all over the country, and so these Democrats raise small to medium-sized dollar amounts from people through the. Democratic 
joint online fundraising platform called ActBlue. And so they just have money to burn. They'll max out on television. They'll max out on radio. They'll max out on mail. They'll max out on digital. And, you know, who knows? Maybe they'll be able to pay all these people with flip signs on corners and precincts because they've got so much money. Uh, But it's still largely, uh, you know, tilted towards television. And some of that is because the median age of a voter is significantly higher than the median age of the population. If the median age of the population is now in its 30s and the median age of the adults are in their 40s, the median age of the voters will be in their late 40s or early 50s. And these people are people who grew up before the digital revolution. They still have a higher likelihood of consuming pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook media, and are still much likelier to be reached through television than by any other mechanism. I'm wondering about uh, your answers, prompts a thought in my mind, which is the demographics of midterm election, the turnout. Um, One thing we hear often is that midterms, of course, turnout will be much lower than in presidential elections, maybe even half as high or, or thereabouts be higher than that, but much lower. Also, younger people won't show up to vote in midterms. Is that what you is that true? And is that what you expect in this midterm? So, so midterms always draw a lower share of the population than presidential elections. The gap has been shrinking in the Trump era that 2018 saw the highest turnout as a percentage of eligible adults since 1942, roughly half of Americans who were eligible to vote um, cast votes in the 20, or maybe it was close in somewhere in the 40s, but it was a record high in 1942. Uh, Echelon Insights, a firm that came very close to modeling the exact number of votes cast in the 2020 presidential election, just came out with their midterm model, and they expect that record to be broken again. Uh, and that is because people are paying more attention. The, the flip side of people being angry about the other side and moving into more polarization is they think every race matters more. So it will, you know, Echelon Insights is predicting about 122 million votes will be cast nationwide in the midterms. 157 million votes were cast in the presidential, so that's a significant fall off. But it is a much lower fall off than would have been the case even 10 years ago, and that's because as people think politics are more important, they make voting in races or the midterms more important in their personal life. Yeah. Um, With the turnout, do you expect that we'll see any significant changes in the coalitions that make up political parties? Because one thing, as you have said, and others, political parties are united in some ways, but really they're coalitions of groups. And sometimes those groups shift and move from party to party. Uh, what do you expect? So, for example, people are saying Hispanic vote is shifting to the Republicans, at least in certain places like South Texas. Do you expect that this midterm will see some shifting of the coalitions in the parties? So what I'm expecting in this midterm is both a ratification uh, with of the past few years and a slight shift. You know, what we've seen in the past few years is that higher income, high educated whites who used to vote Republican are now very open to voting Democrat, or more accurately, very open to voting against the Republican Party that they think has changed for the worse. And there's little sense that that's going to change. Obviously, a number of these people are unhappy with Joe Biden, and some of them will come back. 
and vote for the Republican, not necessarily because they love the Republican, but they want to send the message to their new party that, hey, we didn't vote for this. We voted for something else. There'll be larger shifts elsewhere, I suspect, that what we'll probably see is some of the, uh, we've seen a lot of whites who, without college degrees who 10 years ago voted for Barack Obama, uh, 20 years ago voted for John Kerry and have been voting Republican up and down the line since the Trump administration. We'll see that in spades. And we'll also see a higher turnout from those people than we traditionally see in midterms because they now are energized in ways that they were not before. And so the twin effect of Republicans gaining some vote share there and also Republicans gaining in turnout because of their anger and their intensity will help. And I suspect we will see movements in non-white communities, particularly the Latino community. It's hard to see any national poll that doesn't say there'll be some slippage for Democrats. The real argument is, will it essentially be a minor slippage from 2020, which was already a slippage for Democrats, or will it be a significant one? The behavior of the parties, as opposed to the polls, suggests that it'll be more significant than not. And I say that there are Hispanic districts that um, Democrats currently hold, that Democrat national Democrats are not investing in, uh, which makes sense if they think that Latinos are moving to the other side. And there are Democrats that they should be holding, that they're putting lots of money into. And again, it only makes sense if you think Latinos are shifting. If you think Latinos are not shifting, uh, there's really no reason to be spending millions of dollars in all these house seats in Las Vegas that they're sending spending money in, um, or some of the races in South Texas. Uh, and the Democrats are spending millions of dollars in a race that Republicans have not yet started to target in Central Phoenix, uh, which Biden won by 10 points. Uh, Democrats have spent over $2 million in support of their candidate. That doesn't make sense if they think that Latinos are not moving in a significant degree. So I suspect the election results may not be as large of a shift to Republicans as Republicans hoped or as polls suggested a year ago, but unless these parties are just wasting money profligately, we will probably see a non-trivial shift among Latinos from Democrats to Republicans, which Democrats will still carry Latinos nationwide pretty handily. Um, but they used to carry this group by 35 to 40 points. Uh, they carried them uh, by in the low 20s in 2020. I suspect that we will see the Democratic margin nationwide among Latinos drop below 20 points this year. And when one factors out groups like Dominicans and New York uh, voting, um, we're one of the most heavily Latin, uh, Democratic uh, Latino groups, uh, that we'll see um, significant shifts, particularly among Mexican uh, immigrants outside of California, uh, Mexican uh, descendant Americans outside of California. Some more questions coming in from our audience and talking in particular about issues that might be driving this movement and coalition. And one of our uh, audience members wants to know, and I think a lot of people have been thinking about, what's your sense of the impact of the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade in the spring? Um, what is your sense of the Dobbs decision impact on the midterms? Well, I could be flippant and say it's the most overhyped event since um, Geraldo Rivera said he was going to open Al Capone's vault. But um, it's more important than that. But the fact is, there's very little evidence that this is something that matters. Um, Democrats, it matters to Democrats. Uh, and I think it's going to help energize uh, 
um, the sort of Democratic voter who typically would not vote in the midterm. There are voters, as you noted, who are really presidential only. They don't vote in midterms. They don't vote in local elections. They, you know, as a matter of habit, but they do vote in presidential elections. I think Dobbs has energized that voter in the Democratic ranks. But there's no evidence that the independent voter is being motivated by this. There has never been evidence in the polls that the independent voter is being motivated by this. Within a month or so of Dobbs, we reached a point where abortion as an important issue had risen. But among independents, it was always less than 15% who said it was their most important issue, usually closer to 10%. That number has now dropped a little bit in most polls. The number has, it's it's always been economy or inflation or some combination of that among independents. And it's overwhelming, 35, 40 uh, percent or so of independents say that's their most important issue. And that's risen a little bit. So the fact is Dobbs had an effect, uh, but it was always overblown by the casual pundit and by the mass media. And now we're seeing uh, underlying dynamics reassert itself, which is that the soft pro-choice voter in America, who's not already a partisan, does not prioritize abortion in making their candidate decisions. It doesn't mean they don't prioritize abortion. I expect, you know, like in the Kansas uh, initiative, uh, independents and others came out and uh, pro-choice Republicans voted to keep the right to have an abortion, uh, voted not to abolish that. Um, but that doesn't mean it affects their candidate's decisions. Uh, and so I doubt that we're going to see anything different than what we've seen before. Certainly the polls do not suggest it. And most of the Democrats will get is some mobilization of their base, which helps on the margin, but uh, doesn't overcome the fact that independents don't like Joe Biden and don't like the job that he's doing. You mentioned earlier that 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 this therefore because of that presidential unfavorable number and even in states, if we break it down by that, some Democratic candidates will run ahead of Biden's disapproval rating or approval rating, but not by very much, but they might. You said, and that will be a powerful determinative of the outcome, barring what you called a black swan event in a domestic or international affairs. And one of the one of our viewers was taken by your remark and asked the question, what kind of international event do you think could swing the election in favor of Joe Biden? Because lots of folks will say foreign policy almost always presents perils, political perils to a president, rarely political benefits. But are there some events that you think could swing the election toward Biden in these next weeks? Yeah, I think people should keep in mind that the Cuban Missile Crisis evolved in three weeks, evolved in the three weeks before the 1962 midterms. That uh, the United States brought the evidence of Russians building nuclear missiles in Cuba to the United Nations in the middle of October of 1962, and the nuclear face down occurred in the two weeks before, you know, in the three weeks before, and the successful resolution, which is Nikita Khrushchev deciding not to push their ships carrying the war uh, heads past an American blockade of Cuba uh, meant that President Kennedy had diffused the situation successfully. So while no one thought that Kennedy's Democrats were a terrible, serious problem, it cannot have hurt him that he brought the world, that he protected American security and avoided nuclear war within a week before the midterm. So where do we have an place in the world where we're in conflict with a major power, oh, maybe the Russians, and where nuclear weapons have been mentioned. 
everyone can think of that, it's Ukraine. So the big question for me is what happens if Vladimir Putin decides to test a weak American president right before the midterms uh, with some sort of credible threat or actual use of, uh, of nuclear weapons? Well, that's the sort of thing that could uh, make or break President Biden's reelection efforts. And not that I want that to happen or think it's likely to happen, but as an analyst, one has to be open to possibilities that are not high likelihood, but high impact. And that's probably the one that I think is low likelihood, but massively high impact if it occurs. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to have one of our faculty members tell you about a special documents-based graduate program for teachers of American history, government, and civics. Hi, this is John Moser, chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University. If you are an educator who teaches US history, government, or politics, our program may be just what you've been looking for. Our approach is to emphasize primary sources since we think the best way to study the past is to read the words of those who lived it. We have a distinguished faculty made up of professors from both Ashland University and from colleges and universities across the country. And they're not there to lecture to you. We think it's better to learn through conversation about the documents. Ours is a hybrid program with two different types of seminar. The first are our week-long intensive in-person courses during the summers on the beautiful campus of Ashland University. The second are our live synchronous online seminars offered throughout the year. So if you're a social studies teacher and you're looking to deepen your understanding of America's past and its politics, please check out the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can do that by visiting tah.org programs. What about on the domestic side, um, domestic events that you think could be that kind of black swan issue? You know, the really, aside from a terrorist or, uh, you know, a Russian cell attack in the continental United States, um, the only thing that could theoretically do it would be, and it can't be good for, there, there's no longer any news that's good for Biden. That can happen, realistically. You know, I, uh, no one honestly thinks that gas prices are going to be cut in half in three weeks, uh, particularly given the OPEC plus uh, decision to cut back supply rather than increase supply. Uh, small changes in gas prices are not going to matter. We now know inflation is not going to subside in the next three weeks. The only thing that one could imagine might happen would be a financial crash, and that's obviously not good for Biden. It would, you know, the stock market drop 15% uh, in a week. That would be something that would dominate the news. Uh, but that's highly unlikely. Um, again, uh, it's one, it's highly unlikely, uh, and two, uh, even those sorts of events, like the financial crash coming before the 2008 election, didn't necessarily change the direction of things. Republicans already already looked pretty bad and more confirmed the direction that things were going. But, you know, if we had a market meltdown, you know, again, when do we have you know, 1929, the great market crash happened in late October. You know, we have a market meltdown in two weeks. Um, that could uh, seal the deal for the magnitude of the Democratic defeat. But it's hard to see any economic event that could help the Democrats simply because economies absent massive things like crashes evolve in one direction or another slowly. Um, and uh, we've already seen the big drop in gas prices that happened in the summertime. And it's just 
not credible to see another dollar a gallon or so drop in the next three weeks, given what we know about oil production worldwide. Well, if that's true, one, one of our viewers also asked the question then, if these macro trends are bad for the Democrats, as you're saying, and not likely in, almost under any circumstance to change, then the question that they're asking is, on, on the House side, how many congressional districts are truly competitive then under these circumstances? Has that number remained the same in recent election cycles or has that changed? You know, both sides, both parties have been gerrymandering states where they have control. There are some states that did a better job at having competitive districts. Uh, but overall, the number of seats that could be won has been shrinking uh, as a matter of course over the last two decades. But in an environment like this, what we're going to see is seats that shouldn't be won by Republicans moving into competitive range. In an environment, you know, let's just go back. Uh, Biden won the 2020 election by four and a half points. So if we were seeing a rerun of the 2020 election, then we would expect Democrats to win the lion's share of seats below where Biden won by four and a half points or less. Uh, which would mean they would have a good chance of retaining narrow control of the House. The fact is the best at polling average on the generic ballot uh, shows Democrats leading by about a point. That's a three and a half point switch. So we now, if that was true, we would expect to see the competitive range generally being in seats that Biden won by a small single digit range and seats that tr Democrats hold that Trump care. In fact, we're seeing two things. One is that the polling average is moving in Republicans' favor now has like the real clear average. The polling average has Republicans up by over two points. That's nearly a seven point shift. That means we should expect any seat that Biden won by seven or less to be potentially competitive. And then we get lo and behold, where are the parties putting their money? There is 59 House seats where both parties have spent significant numbers of independent expenditures. And the median seat in that 59th seat is one that beat Biden carried by 6.8%. That's not coincidental. That means the parties are seeing an environment that is consistent with a Republican lead of two points, which means Democrats are triaging seats that Biden won in single digits or that Trump won, even if they held them, because they don't think they can win them back in this environment. And they're spending desperately in seats where Biden won by six, seven, and eight points. You're also seeing seats that Biden won by 10 to 15 points increasingly coming in line in the sense that both parties put million dollar bets in many of those districts in the last week. If they're seeing a movement towards Republicans overall, what that means is that that median is going to shift. That means that the Republicans are going to you're going to start seeing Republicans putting more money in the 10 to 14 Biden seats, Democrats putting money more money there and that democrats are saying anything that biden won by six or less has probably gone we got to hold on to those seats that's what i'm looking for and we're beginning to see that in the house races we're beginning to see it in the senate race we're seeing more money put into colorado which biden won by 13 points republicans are putting more money in there democrats are putting more money in there again this makes no sense in an environment that's even nationally, but it makes a lot of sense in an environment that Republicans have the edge and it's moving somewhat towards the Republicans as both sides are willing to take some bets on long shots, Democrats to protect against a long shot and Republicans may be pressing their luck. 
How many of those seats do you think there are in the U.S. House? Oh, gosh. You know, I could count them up for you. <laughs> uh, I, I could have done that. Is it, are we talking about 10? Are we talking about 20, 30? No, what we're looking at right now, um, so um, there are 14 seats that Republicans currently hold that Biden won. Um, Democrats are not contesting six of them, and they're only rated to win three to five of them. So uh, there are six seats that Republicans gerrymandered out from underneath Democrats that turn from Democratic seats to safe Republican seats. So the expected Republican Democratic gain from the Biden held Republican seats and the Republican gain from gerrymandering basically washes each other out. So that means they wash each other out. Now the question is how many seats did Republicans gain? There's about 10 seats that Democrats hold that Trump carried, Republicans should win probably seven of those. Then there's another 30 to 40 of the seats between that Biden won, the Democrats hold uh, between zero and Biden plus 13. Um, it would be pretty surprising if Republicans didn't win half of them, uh, given what we're seeing. So we're, I think we're right now looking at Republican gains in the House of 25 to 35. Um, obviously, a black swan event that works in Democrats' favor could reduce that significantly. But if current trends hold, I think we're looking at a 25 to 35 seat Republican gain, uh, depending on exactly where race dynamics go. You never know when somebody's going to, you know, I, uh, you never know when somebody's just going to shoot themselves in the foot. You know, there was a candidate in a contested race, Biden plus 6.7 in south, southern uh, uh, Minneapolis suburbs, who in her debate, uh, this candidate's name is Angie Craig, so you can look this up. Uh, she's debating a Republican opponent, Tyler Kistner, and she says, I will never stop supporting the, uh, the needs of the interest of big pharma and opposing the interests of my constituents. <laughs> now, obviously, she got her support and her opposing mixed up a little bit that she meant to say something else, but that's the sort of gaffe that you know is going to be run in ads by Kissner and the Republicans. You know, what side is Angie Craig on? Her slip of the tongue tells you it's not you. You know, you never know which candidate is going to say something like that, and that can shift a race on the margin. But, uh, you know, I think we're looking at plus 25 to plus 35 and, uh, for Republicans in the House, um, depending on uh, precise trends and precise candidate behaviors. What about the Senate? You're seeing um, intense uh, activity, obviously, places like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Georgia, uh, Arizona. Are you are you seeing the same at the trend, the national trend in those states also swinging toward Republicans as well in those heavily contested states? Generally, yes, um, that Ron Johnson in Wisconsin. Again, let's take a look at the, the, the battlefield. Uh, coincidentally, this field, this year's Senate crop has all of the closest, almost all of the closest states. Now, when you in 2020, when you look at the closest states in 2020, four of the top five and six of the top seven have Senate races. Um, and so you would expect, given partisan trends, if partisan trends are moving somewhat, you would expect Democrats holding those seats to have problems and Republicans holding those seats to be advantaged. Wisconsin was one of the closest states in the country. Ron Johnson started the summer post-Dobbs behind. He's now ahead in most polls. And typically, polling error in Wisconsin in favor of the Democrats is quite high, which is to say 
that uh, most polls tend to dramatically overstate Democratic strength in Wisconsin. So that's a seat that's now being triaged by the National Democrats. No one expects them to be putting their last $5 million behind Mandela Barnes. J.D. Vance was behind in polls, another state which dramatically understates Republicans historically. He's now ahead in the polling averages. Again, we can debate what's going to happen, but even uh, most analysts now think that the only question is Vance's margin. Um, so then you've got the you know big four states, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. And there you've seen trends in favor of the Republicans in three of those states. Although Blake Masters is still behind in Arizona, he's been gaining ground on Mark Kelly. Dr. Roz is gaining ground on John Fetterman. Again, remember what I said earlier, don't look at the lead, look at the level. Fetterman seems stuck in 46 to 48% in polling averages, which would be about four or five points above what you would think Joe Biden's average uh, approval average is in Pennsylvania. Um, there's a lot of third party candidates on the ballot. Maybe he can win with 48%, but um, it also suggests that Dr. Oz could come out from behind and the movement will continue over the next three weeks. Um, in Georgia, the Herschel Walker abortion story has depressed his results, but Sean Trendy of Real Clear Politics tweeted out just this afternoon, he said, look at the average. You look and you see that Walker's numbers have dropped in the last couple of weeks since that news came out, but Warnock's has not gone up very much. And I pointed out, responded and said, look, this is exactly what happened with Access Hollywood for Trump. That when the Access Hollywood tape came out, Trump's numbers dropped by a few points, the lead for Clinton went up. But if you looked carefully, Clinton's numbers weren't going up. It was Trump's numbers dropping. And what happened was the closer you came to Election Day and uh, the fact that Trump had survived, you know, he didn't drop out of the race. People didn't abandon him. Those Republican leaning voters came back to Trump. And so um, I expect that to happen with Warnock so that we will be seeing a very tight race in the polls. Uh, by the end of the month. Uh, that's a state that you have to get 50% to win. If you don't, it goes to a runoff in December. We may very well see a runoff. Uh, but the runoff won't determine control if uh, Republicans win Nevada and hold Ohio, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. And so that makes Oz and Adam Laxalt, not Herschel Walker and Blake Masters, the key candidates to watch. What about the effects you mentioned already that of, of these last three weeks? Early voting in many states has already started or just just is getting underway. Mm -hmm. What is the effect, if any, of early voting in the midterms? You know, we just don't know that yet is because early voting has been picking up over years um, that um, we're not in a pandemic. The one thing we know for sure is that now that we're not in a pandemic, mail voting in most states will be significantly lower than it was in 2020. Doesn't mean early voting will be lower, but that people will vote in person more than in mail, by mail. Is that people like to vote in person. Um, there are some states where people have become habituated over years to voting in by mail, and they'll continue to see high mail turnouts. But um, in a lot of states, you'll see early voting happen in person. I don't put a whole lot of stock in early voting as predictors because we just don't know exactly who turns out. Um, we don't know if these are partisans or swing voters. What I'll note is that it's pretty standard that um, early voting picks up dramatically in the nine days before an election. And I suspect that people who used to 
wait until the last week and decide how they're going to vote and then show up on election day. Now, a lot of them now wait until the last week to decide how they're going to vote and then vote early. So I don't think we should put much stock in early voting numbers, except as one can point to a generalized turnout increase. Uh, but we should not put any significant stock in any anyone who says, oh, X is happening. And therefore, we think that Y candidates have virtually any serious analyst will say, we don't know enough about early voting to say that with any degree of confidence. You're just proving now that you're in the charlatan class, not in the analyst class. Uh, <laughs> what about the old adage that increased turnout, and you're suggesting 122 million votes uh, is a relatively high turnout for midterm, that increased turnout favors the Democratic Party? In particular, because it means, and a questioner is asking, does it mean increased vote voter turnout in the 18 to 30 year old demographic, which would we would imagine would skew Democratic? Does it is it still true that increased turnout favors the Democrats? No, um, his, the reason that was true historically because was because historically Democrats drew from the downscale uh, socioeconomic stratus of society and Republicans drew from the upscale. What we know and have known for decades is that people who are doing well economically and are highly educated tend to be more active participants in the political spectrum. So a low turnout would mean a higher proportion of people with that socioeconomic background, which used to benefit Republicans. This is now flipped. The Democrats are now the party of the college educated. The Democrats are now the party of the upper middle income voter. So a high turnout now is likelier to mean that the marginal presidential only voter who's decided to vote in the midterms comes from the lower socioeconomic stratus. That is largely whites and Latinos without a college degree. And that tends to bode well for Republicans. Now, having said that, there are elements of the less likely voter population that still tend trend Democrat. African-Americans are still overwhelmingly Democratic and a high turnout in, that includes high African-American turnout is good for Democrats. Young voters are largely uh, lean towards Democrats. Um, and they don't lean towards Democrats quite as much as people want to say. Once you strip out the racial component, you know, which is to say that a lot of the reason 18 to 30 year olds tend to trend towards Democrats is because non-whites tend to trend towards Democrats and the younger cohort is the most diverse cohort. So once you strip that out, it's less of a young effect than people tend to believe. Um, but you know, if you're seeing in a white area, uh, lots of 18 to 30 year olds voting higher proportion, that will be good for Democrats. On the other hand, if you're seeing lots of 18 to 30 year olds turn out in the Rio Grande Valley, I'm going to guess that that person who is likelier to be the sort of ticked off voter who's angry at the Democrats, and that's not a good thing. So I would say, to sum up, generally, nationwide, high turnout is better for Republicans because of the flipped socio-demographic statuses of the two-party coalitions, but that it will differ by region depending on the voter makeup of that area and the type of person who seems to be voting at greater rates than normal. Interesting. Um, a little surprising to me, but I, but it makes sense. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm wondering, as you look at this, and you've studied so many elections across uh, time in American history, these recent ones in particular, 
Oh, no, not just recent ones, but go ahead. But <laughs> many across American history. So you have a, a vast range of information on uh, midterms and, of course, presidential elections. When you're looking at this particular midterm, what's what, if anything, is surprising to you? Well, you know, um, can you still even be surprised? Be surprised? By, by elections? I'm, 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 I'm not usually surprised surprised um you know i, I wasn't surprised in 2016 uh, by trump um, i had the prediction that i was roundly excoriated for saying that i thought trump would lose but that i thought he'd have a, uh, a decent chance of winning and a better chance of winning than hillary would have of winning by three or more points which of course everyone thought was crazy and of course trump won um I realized three months later, if I had carried through my methodology to state level polls, I would have called, I would have found Trump's victory. I just didn't think of that at the moment. So yeah, I tend not to be surprised too much, but there are some surprising things, um, mildly surprising things. You know, I'd say mildly surprising things that I've seen so far is the progressives did not do as well in Democratic primaries as I thought they did pretty well. You know, the trend is still moving in their direction, but I thought they'd do a little bit better. Again, a mildly surprising thing. I thought Trump would do well in his endorsements, uh, but I thought he might do a little less well than he did. He won a lot of close races. He's um, not quite the same as drawing to an inside straight, but he definitely was playing draw poker and took three cards and came out with a winning hand more often than not. I thought he was going to do a little bit worse in those races. Um, so that was another mildly surprising thing. And then I'd say the third mildly surprising thing is um, I thought that the fundamentals uh, would hold more clearly throughout the cycle. I was a little surprised by the Democrats' summer rally. Um, uh, who knows how much of that was real and how much of that was, um, you know, blue about Dobbs. Um, but I'm not surprised that the fundamentals seem to be reasserting themselves now. I'm not surprised when I see a poll that says R plus five in the generic ballot, Republicans up by five. That doesn't surprise me. That's what I would expect based on Joe Biden's approval rating. Anything, anything R plus three to R plus nine uh, would be in the range of what I would expect. And um, R plus five, R plus six, um, no, that'll surprise a lot of people. But that's, again, what we should expect given um, uh, where somewhere between R3, are winning Republicans winning by three and six is the likeliest outcome. You know, if you're doing a bell curve, you know, that's where the big hump is. Um, that'll surprise a lot of analysts, but it doesn't surprise me. I'm just surprised it's taking us a little longer to get there than uh -huh. I thought. Yeah. Um, one, one questioner wants to know, of course, what does this presage for 2024? And if you are making predictions about 2024, or at least what the midterms could mean for 2024? Well, you know, the biggest thing to remember is that midterms are their own thing. Midterms are in tennis terms where you break serve. Presidential elections are where you hold serve. They're different animals. What the midterm tells you uh, is that uh, it does the electorate that gave a president a majority, are they still largely behind that? A minimal drop in seat, you know, if, like if the Democrats lost 10 seats in the House and hence control and lost one seat in the Senate or stayed in control of the Senate, that would be a great result for a midterm for a Democrat. That would basically be saying, hey, 
you know, uh, all, you know, all signals ahead. Um, and that's, of course, what Democrats are hoping uh, for is that sort of signal. If it is more what I'm expecting, which is minus two in the Senate, given the playing map that's up, that's not good. It's not terrible, but it's not good. Uh, minus 25 to 35, given how many seats they held, you know, which is to say gaining 30 seats uh, off of a floor of 213, which is where Republicans ended after last year. That's a pretty good hit to the Democrats. So if that happens, then that would be a pretty strong rebuke. Um, but what happens then is things reset. And what we know is that, particularly from Republicans, that uh, you can win a massive landslide in midterms and fumble the next presidential election. That's what they did in 94. That's what they did in 2010. And in a sense, that makes sense that the voters were saying, we don't want that. And then not Republicans nominate somebody. And the voters say, but we didn't want that either. And the fundamental fact of American politics since 1932 is that Democrats have a lead in voter identification. Republicans have been fighting uphill since 1932. The range of the hill that they have to fight up is, you know, it's a smaller gap, but it's still fighting up. Is that if all you do is, if you if you mobilize each side's partisans and you split independence, the Democratic Party will win this election. Um, that That's simply, unless that changes, the Republicans will always be fighting uphill. And so you have to nominate somebody uh, with a platform that does their best at not having that be your result. And that means having somebody who can talk to independents who, you know, going into 2012, I was telling Republicans, hey, you know, the sort of person who will decide this election is the person who voted for W in 2004 and Obama in 2008. Of course, base voters think that person doesn't exist. Well, that person exists. All of us know them, unless you're just really in your little worn hole of, of partisanship. And, you know, the, the person who's going to decide the 2024 election is the sort of person who has gone back and forth, the sort of person who voted for Trump in 2016, voted for Democrats in 18 and 20, voted for Republicans in 22. That person's going to decide 2024. So what are you going to talk to say to that person? Does this mean, a, a listener wants to know, for prediction from you, if you're willing to make it, will it be in 2024 Trump versus Biden? You know, I don't make predictions this far out. Uh, it's just unwise to do that. Um, but I would be surprised if we have a Trump versus Biden rematch. Any, a, a couple of reasons for that. A couple, a couple of reasons for that. One, uh, Biden could not run again. Uh, that if Biden gets pasted, you know, if we really do have minus two, minus three in the Senate, minus 30, minus 35 in the House, he, the progressive wing of the party will look at him and say, Congratulations. Thanks for getting rid of Donald Trump. You have uh, shown that you can't lead this country and it's time for us to put a new face. In. Um, he will get a primary challenge. I don't care what his job approval ratings among Democrats are. Um, if they lose the midterms that badly, he will get a primary challenge if he chooses to run again. Um, so there's that. And then you've got the question. Most people think Trump will run again. Maybe he won't. We'll find out. But it's not at all clear that Trump will win. I think he'd have to be rated a strong favorite, but polls increasingly show that Ron DeSantis does well in head-to-head -head matchups, even though he doesn't have the sort of name identification yet that Donald Trump does. The center of Republican opinion is the what I call the MAGA adjacent, the people who like MAGA attitude and policies, but are willing to look at somebody other than Donald Trump. And they look at Ron DeSantis right now and say, hmm, 
I want to look more at that. So I could see DeSantis winning, not saying he would, but between all of these things, do I have to say the probability of both favorites getting through both party primaries intact is greater than 50% and or even put a better way, substantially greater than 50% that I would say, yeah, I think that's the likelihood. No, I actually think the odds of that happening are under 50%. Uh, maybe the single strongest outcome, you know, maybe 40% for the rematch, but 60% for some other combination, which is I'm not willing to talk about, but I think the odds are that there will be some other combination, much as in 2015, people said, oh, it's going to be Hillary, it's going to be another Clinton versus Bush, only we'll have different names, identifications of Clinton and Bush. And Hillary barely got through a serious challenge, and Jeb Bush uh, is now the uh, butt of uh, joke memes uh, in election Twitter. Right. Uh, wow. That's fascinating. Henry, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us this evening. Really appreciate it. Time has just flown by. Great conversation. Thank you for bringing your, your insight and your expertise to bear on these many questions. Uh, we'll definitely be looking forward to seeing the results of the, the upcoming midterm elections. Um, for those of you who are joining us, you'll be sent a, a, a link to a recording of this webinar. Please Share that with your friends, your family, your colleagues, others. Um, get the word out. Uh, they'll they'll want to hear Henry's insights on the upcoming midterm elections. And of course, check out uh, ashbrook.org for more information about the Ashbrook Center. If you're a teacher, teachingamericanhistory.org. Lots of great resources for students, teachers, and citizens who care about this country and our principles and what they mean in things like the upcoming elections. So thank you very much for joining us. We hope at Ashbrook that you uh, take the time to reflect deeply on the meaning of America and what it means in these contemporary times and what it means for us as citizens. As always, we say, stay hopeful, stay healthy, and stay connected with Ashbrook. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Henry. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org. <laughs>